You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening. Uh, it's great to see you all here and of course to all of them uh, following us uh, at home because we're live streaming the event again as always in this, in this series. My name is Daniel Fass. I'm an associate professor in sociology here in Trinity and I'm also the champion of the identities and transformation research theme um, that um, leads this uh, lecture series Trinity and the Changing City. It's in fact the second year that we are running this because uh, building on the dimensions that were explored last year and the success of the series, there were so many aspects still left unexplored that we're going to explore this year. So last year we looked at housing, we looked at um, the linguistic diversity in, in Dublin, we looked at the migrants, um, just to name a few of the, of the sessions, we looked at social class issues, and this year we expand on that and build on that to look tonight at the city on the move, we look at natural and cultural heritage in November, in December we look at racism in the city, we then move on in the, in the new year about a session on religion, uh, notionally called When Was Dublin Baptized and How Is It Faring Today? Uh, then there will be a session on um, food sharing and sustainability within cities in March. And then in April, uh, the end on education, class and uh, inequality in Dublin. So quite a diverse range of um, topics all linked under the umbrella of the changes that have occurred in a cosmopolitan city like Dublin and where Trinity, which is at the heart of Dublin, uh, features in all of this. The transformations, of course, that have been caused by the economic crash, uh, austerity measures that followed on recent improvements in aspects of the Irish economy. All this kind of range of topics is what we want to explore um, in, in the series. And as tonight, uh, the way it works is we always have on the panel uh, Trinity experts that speak on the topic as well as external speakers and practitioners or representatives from the media so that we have both an academic perspective but also non-academic perspective on the topics that we want to tackle. Um, and also what we have done just so in the interdisciplinary spirit of the whole series and indeed the Identities and Transformation Research theme um, we have a chair assigned uh, for each of the, who takes charge of each of these uh, sessions. So tonight it's going to be my colleague Tom Walker from the uh, School of English. So I hand over to him uh, and he will lead proceedings tonight to introduce all our speakers. I hope you all enjoy it. This and indeed, please spread the word. I've distributed leaflets uh, to all of you as you came in. Um, please uh, um, alert others to it as well if uh, some of the forthcoming sessions are of interest. Uh, do come along. We, we're delighted that you're here tonight. And uh, Tom, stage is yours. Uh, thank you, Daniel. So, um, so tonight's session is, is on the city on the move, um, and it's, it's really thinking about uh, uh, the transport of Dublin, the infrastructure of Dublin, um, and how that's really profoundly shaped the experience of those who've lived in the city, um, going right back to the 18th century, and, and moving in, into, into the present and indeed into the future and thinking about you know, how, how there's kind of, that's been a, a constant source of, of, of debate really around the city. Um, and we're going to be looking in this interdisciplinary spirit uh, at perspectives from, from history, from culture, uh, but also from, from engineering and, and from, uh, from geography. Uh, so, uh, so it's my great pleasure to, to introduce this this evening. Our first speaker... Um, so what we'll do is we'll take uh, our four speakers in turn, 
Uh, they're all going to speak for about 10 minutes, and then we will, uh, we'll all come together and have a discussion, and we'll open it up for, for questions as well. So um, our first speaker tonight is uh, uh, Finola O'Kane-Crimmins. Uh, she's professor, a professor in the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at University College Dublin. Her research focuses on the design uh, landscape history of Ireland and of the uh, Atlantic world. Among her many publications, her first book, Landscape Design in 18th Century Ireland, and her 2013 book, Ireland and the Picturesque, Design, Landscape, Painting and Tourism in Ireland, 1700 to 1830, were both awarded the J.B. Jackson Book Prize by the Foundation for Landscape Studies. Um, her current uh, book project at, uh, at the moment is about landscape and revolution in Ireland, uh, France and in America, and it's my great pleasure to, to welcome her up uh, to speak today. Thank you. Too long. It's not slide shorter. No, no, slideshow. I can't see it here. It's, it's at the top, along from view to. Oh, got it. Sorry. Now I'm just going to turn down the lights a little bit. pleasure to be here at the centre of Dublin to talk about essentially Dublin's landscape and how I think it has moved um, and shifted over the past 200 years. And some of what I'm going to talk about is also how Dublin's identity um, and structure has shifted over those 200 years as well. And I thought I'd start with one of my favourite paintings of Dublin, which is that of an Italian arriving into Dublin Bay. Um, and seeing on the left-hand side the kind of Dutch landscape of reclaimed polder dikes. Um, and in the background, which is grey, is Leinster House. Um, so the, the landscape that Dublin sits on is also really very man-made in a way that other Georgian cities are not. It has large areas of reclaimed land. Um, and people at the time noticed this unusual structure that Dublin had. And this is one of my favourite quotations from somebody who visited Dublin in 1780, who wrote that it's necessary to remark that the eastern side of the city, contiguous to the sea, is almost entirely laid out in elegant streets for the residents of the gentry, and the western side, though more remote from the sea, and consequently not so conveniently situated, is inhabited by merchants and mechanics. <coughs> and this is an unusual structure for an 18th century city because of concerns about prevailing wind and the smell. Um, typically, people live in the southwestern quarter of the city. And so Dublin swivelled in the 18th century because of the power of its two great families, the Gardeners and here the Fitzwilliams, um, and essentially started to look to the sea and to look out um, towards the wider world and out into its absolutely wonderful bay. Um, and this is a type of map which in a way commemorates that view of Dublin arriving into the bay. It's also, which I think is significant, the view of people arriving from England into Ireland. So that colonial identity has always affected how Ireland has been seen, 
because a lot of the most powerful people in Ireland were not necessarily here for very long, were not necessarily here at all. Um, and so they viewed Dublin in this way from their position um, and looking at it from there. Um, this is Dublin's landscape. It has always had severe um, morphological constraints on aspects of its transportation, or that is really how you would frame it negatively. You can also frame it positively. Um, it sits on a great bay, but the bay is also a block to its um, developing a proper ring road system, which modern planners and engineers are extremely fond of, and which many European cities, such as Paris, find very easy to develop because of their essential structure. Um, so Dublin has this great bay, which it can address, um, but it also blocks it um, from developing that, that circular system. Um, it also is um, profoundly east-facing, and the fact that it's, it's never looking towards the setting sun has meant that it hasn't really developed the great kind of urban gestures for the setting sun, which cities like Lisbon have developed. Um, where, where people can stroll in the evening and look at the sunset. Um, somewhere like Naples enjoys the setting sun because it looks west. Dublin looks east, and it's also arguable, therefore, that it's at certain morning lights or in certain times of the day that Dublin has tended to be painted best. Um, I think it is a severe impediment to the planning of Dublin um, that we have no great collection of Dublin's paintings and that nobody could possibly really generally remember a great painting of Dublin in the way that it would be impossible as a Dubliner not to know the city's great books. Um, so I do think that's a problem. Um, also, somewhere like Paris, you can go to the Musée Carnavalet if anyone has been there, and you can literally see all the ways Paris has been visualised over time and how Paris has been knocked and developed and people have had different ideas about what Paris should be, and you can track those through the paintings. Um, and this constant kind of perception of Dublin from the East, I think, also drives aspects of her identity. This is the leading image for the scenery of Ireland, <coughs> written by and drawn, um, because text and image work very closely in the 18th century. You don't design a city in plan. You, you design a city the way it might, what it might look like and what would be the most beautiful way for it to look. Um, so our current pre preoccupation with development plans means that we don't necessarily remember why Dublin is where it is, which is that it's on a ford, on a great bay, between the mountains and the sea, and that there's a legacy of people actually analysing um, why it's there in the visual record and also in trying to protect the visual um, beauty of Dublin by using the paintings to essentially kind of plot changes before they happen. And the fact that this is gone from a lot of our design um, traditions and certainly our methods for designing cities, um, usually we only use vistas when we think that, uh, such as in the Matter Hospital, when we think that um, you know, a vista might be damaged by a certain development, then we will maybe look at vistas. But we don't have a way of designing which requires people to keep a visual, a steady visual record of transformation. Um, and I think Dublin did have that in the past, and we should really um, develop a collection of images that would be useful for people in planning the city. So this is Fisher's view of Dublin, and again, it's significant that Dublin is kind of a hazy black mass in the background, and that you're arriving 
um, into the South Wall and the Pigeon House. And that's, that's how you approach not only Dublin, but Ireland. Because if you're designing Dublin, because it's a capital city, you're not only designing um, this immediate local environment. A capital is the head on the body of Ireland as it was described in the 18th century. And many of our large kind of um, infrastructural, um, certainly cultural infrastructures about national museums, national heritages, ch children traveling here for school trips. Um, use Dublin is the head frequently. Whether it should be or not um, is, is, is another question. But, but Dublin is the head on that body, and, and it can't just develop um, lo singular local plans without considering that much larger identity um, and how it impacts on the rest of the country. Um, now, I also want to talk, in the 18th century, they would quarter a city to examine it. So, so there would be views from the four directions. And this is the southern view. This was actually the least fashionable view, because looking north in Dublin is always much more boring. Um, than looking south because you've got the mountains. So th this and this is Fisher's analysis of why this view is not interesting, and that that it's actually how you place the spires that might make it interesting. This is the preferred view, um, and this is Arthur Young writing essentially about this view coming into Merino down the side of Lord Charmant's villa. Um, but here it was very significant. I think he said it would be more perfect if the city was planted out. Um, so there is also a tendency towards the 18th century to move away from urban landscape and to start to consider it probably because of the issues like health um, that, that it has become less attractive and therefore parts of it start to be planted out and also planted out of the paintings. Um, this is the other, this is the view from the west of Dublin, a very um, positive and generally um, popular prospect point, which is from that other great infrastructural barrier in Dublin, which is that of the Phoenix Park. And um, so I spoke already about the great barrier, essentially, of the bay, which stops the ring road. But also we've had this great Royal Deer Park, which dominates, completely dominates the northwestern quarter of the city and really makes it very difficult to plan that quarter in any way, which is both, again, a positive um, and a negative thing. Now, the Phoenix Park is also very interesting in terms of Dublin's identity because it's also the centre of British military power in Ireland for an awfully long time. And you get these very strange drawings like the plan of the manoeuvres. That's essentially the dance that the, the soldiers were doing across this landscape in 1775. So the Phoenix Park is also a great military landscape and roads have always been a domain of military expertise and power. So roads and transportation in Ireland also contain this legacy of the military vision of Ireland, which has obviously changed um, dramatically over time. But the military have always had difficulties with making what they're up to picturesque. And I think this is one example of a, towards the end of the, of the 18th century, when Dublin is moving towards the 1798 rebellion, of Francis, when, when there's a big increase after the French Revolution of turning Dublin in, essentially into a massive barracks location, and um, that you have to try and reframe these views and make them look a little bit more attractive by including cows. <laughs> and, and this is another example where Samuel Broca is working very, very hard with his cows to try and distract attention from those massive lines of troops that are all lining up in front of Orsa Northron, and where it's, it's not difficult to imagine and just what they might shortly have to do in 
in, in, at the time in question. So, so Dublin always has this tension, I think, between beautiful landscape and dangerous landscape, or military landscape, or, or strategic landscape. And roads for the military are always highly strategic. And so you get paintings of Dublin where it's very clearly the military men who are now overlooking Dublin. There's no gambling maids and, you know, um, people... <laughs> Um, nymphs in the River Liffey in this painting, and um, by this time, it's very clearly the military men who are in charge of Dublin's prospects. And these kind of maps, um, in the aftermath of that huge transformation of Ireland into one of the most militarised zones in Europe, which luckily we are now probably about as far away from as we could possibly be. Um, but at that time, this ramping up of barracks, this is the kind of map which you can find in Kew, um, where, where the only buildings painted on the map are the military buildings, and where Dublin Bay has also changed because you can actually land a, an army way out in Dublin Bay at low tide and march them into the city. So if you're the military, then the <coughs> landscape of Dublin is quite different. Um, and also the Phoenix Park, of course, is also very significant in this map, along with the topography of Dublin. And then this, this representation... Um, it, it, we are very fortunate, but for the military, it was always very dangerous as well, that so wild a district as Wicklow should be found so near the principal city in Ireland. It's almost as if you shifted a large part of the Scottish Highlands right into Lambeth and had it overlook London. Um, and how that would have changed the form of London um, is, is interesting to imagine, because but that's the character of Dublin. It has a very wild area right up against it. Um, and this was problematic. So you get these kind of military roads um, driven through as picturesque routes, driven from Dublin far into Wicklow. And this is an engineer um, doing a very great drawing um, from the end of the 18th century about the military road and the ideal route for that military road out of Dublin, which was also, of course, also going to be a tourist road. Because if you were doing a military road, you may as well do it so that tourists might like it as well. Um, and these are the drawings by Alexander Taylor of that road, and there's the map of the military. I'm using this as an example of previous kind of road endeavours, which were also accompanied by programmes of images, so that what you saw from the road and what the road did were kind of part and parcel of each other. And that the landscape, this is, the, the, this is the Charles Abbott, who was the, the chief secretary of the time, out in Wicklow, plotting how to essentially take this landscape from the 1798 rebe rebellion, where the rebels were still camped out, and basically make it, in, turn it into an imperial picturesque, because the, the picturesque had really been um, taken over by romanticism and by revolutionary men. And it was necessary, as a counter-revolutionary measure, to, to re-inhabit and retake those roads and reconquer them. So these kind of paintings, despite being very pretty in watercolours and in a nice exhibition on College Green, which the Lord Lieutenant also paid for, were, were also part of that programme to civilise Ireland and to connect it all with all these roads. Um, and making the transportation extremely easy, yet for the citizens, but also primarily for the military, so they could move as quickly as possible um, around that landscape. And um, so that, that's what I wanted to show you. I will just go back. That's what I wanted to talk about today, um, that Dublin um, has a long structure that has impacted on its transportation. It has impacted on the possible networks that can be made in that transportation. Some of them we like, some of them we don't like, some of them we might want to lose. 
Some of them we might want to continue. Um, and then it also has always used three-dimensional and two-dimensional images or places like the Phoenix Park to kind of plan out these infrastructural problem, um, projects and make them attractive to as many people as possible. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, our second speaker is uh, Dr. Catherine Milligan. Uh, Catherine recently completed uh, an IRC, an Irish Research Council uh, postdoctoral fellowship uh, in the School of Art History and Cultural Policy at University College Dublin, uh, before which she was the ESB Fellow at the ESB Centre for the Study of Irish Art at the National uh, Gallery of Ireland, before which she completed her PhD here at, at Trinity. Um, her recent publications include research on Harry Clarke and Walter Osborne, uh, and her study, Days Long Dead, Painting Dublin, 1886 to 1949, is forthcoming next year from Manchester University Press. the introduction, Tom, and for inviting me to come and speak this evening. Um, I think my paper should, should follow on quite nicely from Fanona's. I, will, I feel like I need to apologise to the 19th century. There are several beautiful paintings of Dublin in the 19th century, but I'm going to dive right into the 1920s. Um, but you can get the book next year to see some of the 19th century <laughs> paintings. Um, so I suppose where, where I'm coming from um, on this idea of of transport and the city is how artists have depicted um, their movements through the city and the types of uh, transport infrastructure. When we look at urban painting, really from the, the mid-19th century onwards, we see um, particularly trams and trains, modes of transport associated with industrialization, with modernity, with modernization of the city as these spaces that artists become interested in because they're places where the people of the city come together, where you have um, you know, upper class, lower class, middle class, all coming together to use, say, a tram network to, to move around the city. Um, and I think to date this has been maybe slightly overlooked in Irish art history. So this evening I'm going to talk um, a little bit about Carrie Kernoff, whose painting you see here, um, and about Jack B. Yates as well, who I think will be uh, familiar to many of you. Um, this is a, a very early painting by Kernoff from 1926, um, showing a tram kind of bounding over one of the canal bridges, um, and you see in it that excitement of the new, of the modern city, filled with light, with uh, commuters, kind of, you know, going to and fro um, on it. And, and you really get that sense of, of excitement and potential um, in this mode of transport. Um, I'm going to focus on, on the tram. Um, I think it's something that we are starting to rediscover as the Lewis extends. And I think the comment you always hear is like, why did we ever take out the trams? <laughs> you know, and when you look at this body of paintings, you really see how culturally um, important um, they were. So just to, to give you a, a, small, a short kind of sense of how extensive the network was, um, the tram network was started to be kind of put in in the 1870s with horse-drawn trams. And by the early 20th century, you have 17 routes running around the city um, and slowly you know, becoming um, electrified as well. 
we see the tram in lots of cultural forms, not least in Ulysses um, by James Joyce. And I wanted to, uh, if I can find the page, read you just um, a little bit. Um, the kind of central terminus for the tram network was Nelson's Pillar. And we see the pillar here in a woodcut by Harry Kernoff, published in his 1951 book, um, Woodcuts, but probably um, made through the 1940s. We see a range of transport here, cars, buses, um, and trams as well. This is the little drawing that he would have made uh, in preparation for making the woodcut. Um, but I want to read you just a short passage um, from Ulysses that's titled In the Heart of the Hibernian Metropolis. Before Nelson's pillar, trams slowed, shunted, changed trolley, started for Black Rock, Kingstown and Dalkey, Klonski, Rathgar and Terenure, Palmerston Park and Upper Rathmines, Sandymount Green, Rathmines, Riggsend and Sandymount Tower, Harold's Cross. The horse Dublin United Tramway Company's timekeeper balled them off. Rathgar and Terenure, come on, Sandymount Green. Right and left, parallel, clanging, ringing, a double-decker and a single-deck moved from their railheads, swerved to the downline, glided parallel, start, Palmerston Park. So I think even this, this short passage, you really get a sense of that kind of frenetic energy, energy that you have around this tram network that's conveyed in some of these artworks. I think most people are familiar with this painting, Jack Yates' um, The Liffey Swim, which is in the National Gallery collection. And I wanted to start here because, again, when we look at this painting, we look at the swimmers, we look at the river. But I want to just draw your attention. I'm going to borrow your pointer, if I may. Hopefully it will work. Uh, is there a... Yes. But if we look here, we have a tram, and another tram, and another tram. And if you look just here, we have someone presumably uh, not going very far. You see the bicycle wheel just poking out of the crowd here. Um, and so we see how this form of transport is made part of the infrastructure of the city through Yeats's painting. This, however, was a subject that he didn't just come to in 1923, and he would continue to go on. When we look back at the Yeats's um, sketchbooks, which are really um, one of the most fascinating parts um, of his oeuvre, these are small, pocket-sized, um, ring-bound sketchbooks that he would carry in his coat pocket as he walked through Dublin, noting down these little scenes, probably doing an initial sketch in, in pencil and then adding watercolour at a later date. We see here one example from the New York Public Library of the Dublin Bread Company Cafe on Dame Street. We have someone having her, her break here, but then again outside you see the tram and another form of transport, the horse and cart just beside her. And again here, a much earlier work, 1901, but prefiguring, I think, the Kernoff painting of this idea of the tram as it crosses the canal bridge from these still relatively new suburbs into uh, the city centre. But when we come to the 1920s, we really see the idea of, of the tram and the space of the tram develop into something else in Yeats's painting. So we're going to look at two paintings from the same date. This one, the first is from 1923, so the same year as the Liffey Swim, and it's called In the Tram. And we're travelling along, we think, as best we can, this greeny hedge here, the wall, perhaps down along the side of, this, of Phoenix Park on the loop and tram, and we have these three women sitting in a carriage having a good old gossip. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, they've got these great hats and their clothes, but just notice the distance then and this solitary passenger here. This, as I said at the start, this idea of a space where people are kind of mixing, or in this case, where they're 
some are mixing, some are isolated from each other. This painting is from the same year, and so you can see often we think about Yeats and his painting as developing over time, but these paintings show how actually it's more um, uh, kind of working alongside each other, trying out new things as he goes along. This is called the full tram. Um, I think it always reminds you of evenings that maybe a little bit like tonight when it's raining and the last thing you want to do is get onto a full Lewis carriage. <laughs> you can always smell the wet coats. But again, what we have, this wonderful beam of golden light on the floor and the roof of the tram, drawing us down into this really crowded space. And again, we see the solitary figure here, watched by this woman who's just entering the trolley. And again, we get this idea of kind of surveillance in the painting. If we look here, the faces of these two men looking over um, at the woman here. And I think it's really interesting to think about this in relation to the date, 1923, we're just at the end of the War of Independence, the Civil War. And when we look back through the um, military witness statements in the military of Bureau, uh, Bureau of Military History, we see that the trans played a really important role during the guerrilla warfare in Dublin, often, you know, there's little tidbits about meetings or kind of kidna almost kidnappings and that kind of thing happening on the tram. And Yates kind of brings us into that, maybe that's some of that paranoia that might have pervaded Dublin at that time. But this, you know, as I say, continues to develop as his technique changes. This is a work from the Harvard Museum of Arts. His works have ended up all over the place. Um, and we have the Dublin newsboy, who we see here, boarding the tram. So he's coming in through the door of the tram with this suggestion of kind of Georgian buildings here and little dots of light. We could do a whole other um, talk on Dublin newsboys in Yeats's paintings. Um, but this is, is quite a, a late example of this. Really fantastic the way that he's painted the face and we kind of get that sense of motion and speed. But what I find really interesting with this work is how he's bringing us into the interior of um, the of the tram, just like he did with, with some of the other works, but we feel like we're sitting down and this boy is popping his head around uh, to talk to us. It's very immediate. If any of you are, are feeling like you would like your own Yates painting of a tram, now is your chance to get one. This is a work that's currently up for auction in Adams, um, but was included in a recent exhibition in the, in the National Gallery, and it's called Crossing the Canal Bridge from the Tram. And um, this the scale of the reproduction doesn't do justice to it. It's about this size. A really beautiful, small, detailed painting. And again, he's bringing us into the motion of the tram. If we look here at how the tilt of the, the window frame as it crosses over the bridge, looking out into the dark canal here in blue, some touches of white, the green banks, and then it doesn't quite come across, but we have the little lamps of the streetlights, and again, the evening rush of commuters. When we get to 1927, which these three final works date from, the Harvard one, the one I just showed, and this work here from the tram, trop, tram top, we see um, again the development and the transformation of Yeats's urban vision. He goes from being that kind of isolated figure in the interior to this figure sitting on top of the tram surveying the city. He's made kind of that paranoia into something um, more powerful. Um, and I suppose when we are here this evening to talk about transport in the city, we might think, well, why are these works important? Why do some paintings from the 1920s, what do they have to do with the development of transport today? Well, I think, and I hope you think, that these are very familiar to us. 
we've all sat in the crowded carriage. Um, and when we look at art or literature descriptions of transport, we see that it affects our everyday journey through the city. What is a network without it being good for the people who use it? And Yates gives us a real sense of how the tram network was used by people in Dublin through the 1920s. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Katie. Um, so our, our third speaker tonight is uh, Federico Cugarulo, uh, um, who is Assistant Professor here at Trinity in, in Smart and Sustainable uh, Urbanism um, in the Department of Geography. Um, he is currently uh, researching how artificial intelligence is impacting on urban governance and planning. Uh, he's done extensive research uh, in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia, where he's investigated the sustainability uh, performance of supposedly environmental cities such as uh, Mazdar City in Abu Dhabi. And his work has been used uh, by the United Nations and uh, the United Kingdom's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs to receive future urban challenges and develop uh, preventative policies. Uh, so I'll hand over to David. Thank you very much. Hello everybody, thank you for being here, it's a fantastic event, thank you Tom for organizing it. Uh, let me ask you a question, a very direct question. Would you use an autonomous car? And uh, I'm asking would you use, I'm not saying would you drive, because in this case you would not be driving. The car would drive itself, or more specifically, there would be an artificial intelligence, an AI, doing the job for you. And we're not talking about uh, some kind of uh, science fiction or uh, a scenario set in a faraway future. Autonomous cars are currently being tested in uh, a number of uh, cities all around the world, uh, London, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, San Francisco, even very recently uh, Dublin uh, experienced uh, a trial of uh, a self-driving uh, vehicle in uh, the Docklands, so not very far away from uh, where we are Sorry, today. I just need to use the mic, I don't okay. think I can hear you at the back. Can you hear me? No? No. no? Okay. Sure. Uh, okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, in Dublin, very recently, uh, there was a trial of uh, a self-driving uh, bus. So, autonomous cars can be literally uh, around the corner. Um, this is unlikely, however, to be a um, smooth transition. Uh, perhaps uh, you, like me, are uh, a bit afraid of uh, a car that drives itself. Uh, perhaps uh, you're thinking about what happened in uh, Tampa, Arizona, uh, last year, when uh, a self-driving car, an Uber car, uh, killed a woman who was crossing 
the roads in these uh, uh, built uh, environments. And in fact, the literature, uh, recent studies, uh, show that uh, a lot of people, especially vulnerable uh, road users, such as uh, cyclists and uh, pedestrians, are afraid of simply being around a self-driving uh, car. So it might be that uh, uh, until uh, uh, car manufacturers like uh, Tesla, for example, uh, can uh, effectively uh, demonstrate that a self-driving car is at least as safe as a human-controlled one, this transition won't happen at all. So not a smooth transition. Or maybe it is actually going to be a very smooth transition because there are factors in addition to the attitudes that we have as human beings towards uh, self-driving cars, factors uh, that matter in this uh, uh, context. Um, so let's travel back in time. Uh, we cannot uh, travel uh, far away in the future, but we, th we can think about history, like in the past, uh, we've experienced in uh, cities uh, many transport uh, revolutions. And uh, I'm going to talk about, we can have a look at uh, uh, what happened in the past uh, quickly and uh, learn uh, from it. So let's imagine that uh, we're not in Dublin uh, anymore. And I think it's going to be easy because you know, we've seen a lot of amazing uh, paintings from the past. So let's imagine that we can go back in time. But we're not in Dublin. Uh, we are in uh, Paris in the 1700s. Uh, and uh, we pick up a copy of the uh, Tableau de Paris, which was uh, a guide for Paris visitors and uh, locals, written by uh, Louis-Sébastien Mercier. So we're in Paris, uh, 1781. Uh, we pick up a copy of the Tableau. And this is what we learn about uh, Paris from the words of uh, Louis-Sébastien. Mind the carriages. Mind the stagecoaches. Here come the prince behind six horses at the gallop as if he were in the open country. The threatening wheels of the overbearing rich drive rapidly as ever over stones stained with the blood of their unhappy victims. Quite impressive and scary. So what was happening back then is that uh, stagecoaches had been introduced in uh, European cities. And cities were not ready. It was a dangerous technology. And many people were being killed. And many people were worried and were protesting about it. But the point is that back then, the aristocracy really wanted stagecoaches. That's because uh, stagecoaches were then very fashionable. They were very fast. It was exciting for a nobleman to ride one, and they just didn't care about what the demos, like the simple people, uh, felt about this technology. So they imposed this dangerous uh, transport technology <coughs> on the population and into the city, regardless of uh, people's feelings uh, towards stagecoaches. 
But perhaps uh, we don't need to go back in time to understand these uh, controversial um, aspects of urban transport uh, transitions. We can think about what's happening today with uh, normal cars. Like we know for a fact that every year about 1 million and 2,000 people die because of road traffic uh, accidents. And that's the principal cause of death for children and young adults all over the world. And yet we use cars, we drive cars. Cars are everywhere in the city. So maybe the same dynamics, the same controversial dynamics will underpin the transition towards uh, autonomous transports, which might be much smoother than we think. And to explore this phenomenon in more uh, empirical details, I want to share with you some uh, preliminary uh, findings from uh, a project that we're currently running in uh, uh, Trinity. It is called Surpass How Shared Autonomous Cars Will Transform uh, Cities. It is a two-year project funded by the Irish uh, Research uh, Council, uh, merging urban geography with uh, computer science methodology. It is the first project of uh, its kind. I am the PI and the urbanist of the project. I'm very lucky to be working with my colleague and friends from computer science, uh, uh, Professor Ivana Dusparik. We also have two amazing postdocs, which I want to thank, uh, Dr. Ransford Achapong and uh, Dr. Maxine Guerriau. And we're looking at how the city of the future will change the moment autonomous cars will be in play, will be part of the urban equation of uh, uh, transport. The first part of the project is looking at people's attitudes. So how do you feel about uh, an autonomous car? Are you concerned about it? Would you drive one? And we managed to collect, as part of our first uh, uh, survey, about uh, 1,200 responses. And we're very proud to say that this is the largest and most in-depth survey of its kind. So let's have a look at what uh, people in Dublin uh, feel about uh, uh, driveless uh, autonomous cars. So as you can see from this uh, uh, table, uh, many people have uh, a plethora of concerns uh, regarding self-driving cars. Uh, they are afraid about uh, a self-driving car interacting and hitting cyclists, hitting pedestrians, or just a simple interaction between uh, a driverless car and uh, a manual car is a source of uh, concern. Uh, people are also very worried about the system uh, driving the car being hacked or the system simply uh, malfunctioning, like it happened in the case of Tampa when the Uber car uh, killed uh, a woman. So there are a lot of uh, very, very deep uh, concerns regarding this technology. Yet, when you ask people, okay, you have these concerns, but ultimately, if autonomous cars were available, would you drive one? This is what we find out. Yes, most people say, you know, despite these concerns, I'll be happy to drive, uh, not to drive, to be on a driveless uh, car. 
uh, which is very interesting. I think it says a lot about you know, human nature and how you know, many factors uh, shape uh, our decisions, uh, and this goes beyond uh, safety. Um, so that's the first part of the project. In, uh, in the second part of the project, which is ongoing, we're basically uh, running a computer simulation. We're using these uh, sociological data uh, to simulate how the city or the future will change in terms of traffic, the moment autonomous cars are in play, and how we can redesign the built environment to maximize the sustainability of the city. Uh, we don't have uh, questions. We have a lot of questions. We don't have answers yet. It's an ongoing uh, project, and that's also one of the main reasons why we're here today. This is an open question which concerns uh, everybody. So would you drive? Uh, would you use a driverless car? Uh, and what is your vision of the city of the future? I'm looking forward to sharing ideas with you in the next uh, uh, forthcoming discussion. Thank you very much. So our um, fourth and final speaker is uh, Brian Caulfield, Caulfield, who's a, an associate professor again here at Trinity in the, the Department of Civil, Structural and Environmental Engineering. Uh, Brian's research addresses uh, issues such as the environmental impact of transport and uh, methods to reduce the carbon impact uh, of transport. Uh, Dr. Caulfield's research is also, uh, Dr. Caulfield is also the former chair of the Irish Transportation Research Network and sits on the executive committee of the university's research uh, transport studies group, as well as several committees at the Transportation Research Board in Washington, D.C. Uh, and Brian's going to speak to us here. Uh, of course, yeah. the light on? No, Okay, um, I've just done five hours of teaching today, I'm getting over a bit of um, vertigo, so I'm going to sit down, otherwise it's going to be a very interesting uh, presentation. Um, Can you just turn on your microphone? Oh, they're forward too. Thank you. Is it on? You just have to press the green button. Press on. There we go. Now, can you hear me? Um, yeah, I might need to bring it forward a bit more. Sorry, it's just okay. the rise of the back. No problem. Thank you. Um, so my kind of theory when it comes to teaching transport is that we have a space problem. We don't have a transport problem in this city or any city. Um, it's um, something I teach all my students, um, basically because if we had or if we wanted um, motorways, if we all wanted to drive, we could build the motorways. The engineers can do that. Um, we could build heavy rail systems that would carry people. It's a matter of kind of apportioning out this space and what we want this space to do. And my slides aren't as eloquent as the, the, the really nice slides that we saw from our colleagues from Humanities. Um, there are going to be some numbers. Um, there's also going to be some images as well. So what makes a city livable? So there's a number of cities that always come up at the top in terms of livability um, and uh, somewhere that people want to be. So this first city here is Amsterdam. And here um, we have in the blue box is a modal split. And a modal split is basically what traffic engineers look at when they see a city to see whether or not it's sustainable. So in this one here in Amsterdam, you can see 20% of people um, drive on a daily basis to get to work. 17% public transport, about 30% of people walk, and about 32% of people cycle, which is 
is, is expected at Amsterdam. Um, the white box there comes from a data that we use in civil engineering called the TomTom -Tom, uh, Congestion Index, and basically that shows that, say, in the evening peak, uh, if you're driving by car, you're driving an extra 15 minutes above what you should be. Copenhagen, pretty similar, 26% um, in uh, private cars on their own, which is very, uh, very small compared to what we have in, in, in Dublin. About 27% by public transport, 41% by bicycle, um, and this is the cheapest and most healthy and cost-effective mode of transport, and that's clearly the, it's the one that we're pushing in the city. Congestion isn't really an, isn't that much of a problem in Copenhagen. In The Hague, this is another city that comes out as, as being quite sustainable. You can see that um, uh, car traffic does increase in this city. It's a little bit more than in other cities, um, but you can see bicycle and walking are, are quite high, and the congestion as well is a little bit more than the previous two, but not as much. And then Dublin, 46% um, of people in our city drive to work, um, which, is, which is too high. 21% use public transport. 20% of people walk, and the walking um, um, figure here is very high, and it's something that we should be, be very proud of. There is no investment in walking. There is no walking policy that the Department <laughs> of Transport has put out. Um, and cycling is at 5% from a very low base a number of years ago, and that's the mode of transport that gets a lot of attention, and it's the one that's growing. But you can see then in terms of congestion, people are spending an extra 26 minutes um, in the evening peak stuck in traffic. Um, these are averages. Obviously, there are some people that are, are, are it's, it's taking longer. We have congested public transport network. Um, this is an image of um, the, the, the amount of buses we have in the city. Um, I think it was mentioned in the bio for this for the talk about um, Bus Connects and uh, Metrolink and their two projects that I've been kind of vocal about and promoting um, in, in the media. Um, we, have a, we have a congestion problem on our public transport network in the city. We don't, if everybody in the morning decided to leave their car at home, there isn't the capacity for us to use um, bus in, in our city at the moment. This is a website which I laughed when I heard it was, a, it was launched. It's called peaktime.ie, and basically it's the dart telling you when you should take the dart. Um, <laughs> if you take the dart in these red zones here, you're likely to be standing, and you're likely to get beautiful paintings, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but you're not likely to get a seat, or you're maybe not likely to get onto the dart itself as well. So it's one of the only cities in the world that I know this happens. And this is obviously a symptom that our city has congested and the public transport offering, if it were increased, that the demand is there. And it's one of the things that I spoke recently at, at the, the National Transport Conference, and I said at the moment there is the political, well, maybe not the political will, but there's definitely the, the, the people are behind to support um, an increased investment in public transport. The Citizens' Assembly came out and said that we should be investing in public transport two to one over private transport. There isn't a public transport project being constructed at the moment in this country. Uh, we've lots of plans. Um, so this is what I mean by space. So that's a bus. That's the amount of people a bus will take, and that's how many cars um, a bus should be able to take out as well. Um, the next slide, so this type, of, this type of image has been done all around the world and it shows how sustainable the space is. So these spaces and this type of road is a rarity in our city um, and it's making the most out of these spaces. Um, I, I feel it's the most important thing that we, we, we need to do. This is Bus Connects. So this is obviously Outer City Bus Connects. Um, it's got two car lanes in the middle, two bus lanes, two cycle lanes, two footpaths. It's got trees. 
Um, everybody's happy. Um, but there are parts of the city where this isn't going to be the case. Uh, there's going to be parts of the city, and I think there's a really good example of citizen engagement that happened in Inchicore, where the people of Inchicore wanted to keep their trees, they wanted to, um, they wanted to have bus connects, they realised they live in a city, they realised this is something that's important, and engagement with the NTA had meant that um, they're basically getting rid of the car. Um, and it's like someone asked me there recently that um, was this by by design that you know they were going out saying they were going to chop down all the trees and then the the, the outcome of that was that the that the cars were gone and I said I don't think so I don't think yeah I don't think that was the, that was the case but this is one of, this is the biggest project it's the project that you're all hearing about it's the project that's not just the Dublin based project it's a project that's going to happen in Galway Cork Limerick Waterford bus connects. It's a fundamental rethinking of how we use our bus network in our city. Um, as you saw at the start, we have bus congestion in our city. We don't have the space to just simply put on extra buses. Um, that has been and gone. Um, we, need to, we need this Bus Connects project will give us 40% extra capacity with very minimal extra buses um, um, put on. But it's a debate as a city that we need to have, and it's a debate that's, um, that's ongoing. I think next week, the next version of Bus Connects is launched. It's the biggest civic engagement is the biggest public consultation outside of a referendum that's ever happened in the state. The amount of submissions, etc., has been phenomenal. Um, people are engaged in it, and there is the political will there for it, and generally mostly positive. This is another project that I'm quite passionate about. I tell Dublin City Council it's the extension of Front Square, um, <laughs> down as far as, almost as far as the Central Bank. And this is a project that basically is the, the, the introduction of one of the only plazas that we will have in the city. It's the, it's the civic space we use when presidents we like come to talk to us. Um, so it's 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 a space that we should re we really should be reclaiming back. Um, and these are the two big decisions I feel the city is making at the moment. The metro is going to happen, um, barring an economic shock, I think. And it's maybe it's perhaps less less contentious compared to this project and and the bus connects project. But you can see that the vista. There's a number of these different images that that are out there. And this is another project that's going to, to, to planning again. So sometimes we get it wrong. Um, this is an image of uh, the keys. And this is an awful artist's impression, so there's an awful art as well, <laughs> of the Liffey. And this is a motorway that they wanted to build across the Liffey that was going to go up through Christchurch um, and it was going to go out towards Harles Cross and on the opposite side of the city go past Boombridge. And this was a motorway that was built or designed and planned by, by engineers, traffic engineers, back in the 60s, and thankfully we ran out of money and this never saw the light of day. Um, so this is an idea, this is a, an example of a project that um, didn't happen. This is an example of a project that did happen. So this is this is an image of the Lewis tracks, sorry, not the Lewis tracks, the tram tracks that were taken up. Um, and more or less, re the, the reinstatement of the uh, of the current Lewis system in front of college is more or less a carbon copy um, of what we've taken up. So that's kind of the, the bigger city thing. And transport, one of the things that people in Dublin City Council tell me about Trinity and our campus is that it is the um, roundabout in the middle of the city that they can't get into. Um, but a colleague of mine, um, our head of department, Angus Magnabola, um, told me about this image and he, he sent it to me this morning. And I just think it's it's a nice way to finish in terms of transport and Trinity and something that was they tried to push on us but never happened. This is um, a 50-year-old front page from the Trinity News. 
and basically it says that front square sold to the corporation. Um, what did they sell it for? Car parking. Um, and the main thing, well, they didn't obviously sell it to car parking because you just walked through it, but um, the main question that the student that was, uh, it was being interviewed at the time was, and it was interviewing Dublin City Council, was that um, could the students park um, in Front Square as well? And the, it's a very interesting article, but it, it kind of it shows the sign of the times and it shows, you know, in the city centre that transport comes into our front door. The province was the only neighbour that had a, drive, a driveway onto the current new Lewis track. So, we are. We do have a lot to say in terms of transport in the city, and there's many academics in our university that that do say that quite loudly. And that's kind of what I want to finish on. Thank you.